Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. The Senate's impeachment trial of Donald Trump is set to begin in just an hour. We'll talk with journalist James Fellows about what to expect and the purpose of a second impeachment trial that everyone expects will end in an acquittal. Meanwhile, President Biden is reckoning with multiple crises stemming from the pandemic. We'll talk with Fellows about how the Biden administration should triage the nation's problems and we'll assess the new administration's early policy moves. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The Senate will open the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump in about an hour, and they'll begin today with a debate over whether it's constitutional to prosecute a president for impeachment after he's left office. National correspondent for The Atlantic, James Fallows, joins us to talk about impeachment and the difficult road ahead for the new president and his administration. Fellows writes, quote, in addition to looking forward to all the problems they are now supposed to solve, they must look backward to reckoning with what Donald Trump and his enablers have done. And welcome back to Forum, James Fellows. Uh, Michael, it's a delight to be able to talk with you again. Thanks so much for having me. Same here and delighted to have you here. And I guess the place to begin is with this question of constitutionality. And I want to get your take on it because... The Senate has already voted 55 to 45 that this is indeed constitutional, so they're really just going to be voting again. Um, they are, and you know, uh, stipulating that I am not a lawyer and and don't present myself as an expert on the constitutionality. There are, of course, the contending arguments that have made you know, that have been made that the Republican side, most of the Republican side, saying that it's a moot issue since Donald Trump is no longer in office, and the other side being made by a number of Republicans and many many Democrat, most Democrats too, is that in a way impeachment would be meaningless if the whole question could be extinguished by somebody deciding to leave office. And and there there was a an essay to that effect by a uh, leading you know Republican lawyer, Mr. Cooper, recently saying, of course, uh, the impeachment that the historical examples the founders had in mind when they were considering impeachment involved things that that persisted beyond the person's leaving office. So, um, as a practical matter, the Democratic majority will probably vote to proceed. Um, then we'll go on to have the trial. And the trial is going to be based really on one principle that uh, the president actually incited insurrection and the assault on the Capitol. And uh, in, in 
great part that's going to be proven presumably by a lot of videos, isn't it? Well, it certainly is going to be um, evidence will be offered to that um, that end. And the question of whether it will be proven, I guess, will be in the minds and ears and judgment of the jurors. I should have said the attempt to prove it will be in the video. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think the, the... you know, this is something that it, we are now not quite five weeks past the historic assault on, on the Capitol. And this is a move that really no one anticipated before that date of January 6th. And as it happened, uh, my wife, Deb, and I were traveling away from D.C. on that day. And we're out of sort of news uh range while all the assault was going on and to reconnect with people in D.C., people who had been working in the Capitol and the news footage that day and the following days, it was a, at least in the Washington um, connection, it was sort of like the 9-11 shock uh, in New York. Obviously, nothing comparable in loss of life, but something similar in thinking that fundamentals had changed. And so there was a lot of even Republican talk at that period, um, two weeks before the the inauguration, that some reckoning, some accounting had to be made. And we're dealing now with the uh, almost five weeks later aftermath of that. And if you just join us, we're talking with James Fellows, who is national correspondent for The Atlantic and also author most recently of Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America, which was written with his wife, Deborah Fellows, which is the basis of a forthcoming HBO documentary. It was a book that we discussed when we had a celebration of Forum uh, back at the Presidio, which uh, Jim Fellows was at. And I guess when we get into this argument of uh, incitement, uh, it comes down to, well, on the one hand, you have Trump's lawyers, of course, saying it's free speech to say what he wanted to, but the interpretation of... uh, and he said, uh, you know, that we have to fight like hell as opposed to saying go peacefully. I think, again, making clear that I'm not a lawyer and also making clear that once upon a time, 40 plus years ago, I worked in a Democratic uh, presidential administration. I was Jimmy Carter's speechwriter back in the day, just disclosing both of those things. I think there are two arguments um, in Donald Trump's defense, which are pretty um, plainly made in bad faith. One is this free speech argument. No one is contending that Donald Trump did not have the right to say anything that that he said. The question is, in the unique position of being president of the United States, with all of the um, all of the weight and the gravity that goes with that office, was it a wise thing for him to have done? The other is whether the standards of a criminal trial of proof beyond a reasonable doubt are what what should be at stake here. Of course, the Constitution unhelpfully defines impeachment as involving so-called high crimes and misdemeanors. But it seems clear from from parsing the the founders' intention that high crimes doesn't mean the the counterpart of a felony or something that would be something in criminal law. It's whether it's use of office, use and misuse of office. So I think those two uh, standard rebuttals that, of course, Donald Trump had the right of free speech. Of course, he does. And this might or might not be uh, you know, meet the standards of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal trial, which also involves a unanimous jury. I think those aren't really relevant to the case that the senators have to weigh. All right. For someone who's not a lawyer, you speak with good legalese. Uh, <laughs> what about and Speaking of legalese, what about the subpoenaing of witnesses? I mean, to some extent, that was to no avail in the first impeachment trial. People who were subpoenaed simply didn't comply. A number of them. 
yes, and I think that that it's um, of course there's been a difference in congressional control from that that era to this era, where the Republicans were in charge of of the committees and the subpoena power then, and the uh, the Democrats are now. And there also was a sense in that final year of the Trump administration that um, that many administration officials just said, "Okay, you're going to subpoena me, and I'm not going to." show up and see you in court. And the idea was that in the weeks or months it might take to litigate that, you know, history would have moved on. So I think there is a judgment the Democrats are making right now as as you and I speak about in what way they want to present the case that something radically disruptive in American civil society occurred five weeks ago and that Donald Trump played a unprecedented role in either encouraging or abetting it, that when he knew that that this kind of destruction was going on and that elected legislators were in physical danger and a number of people actually died, how did he behave with the powers of his office? And I think that's, it, whether it's witnesses, whether it's videos, whether it's accounts, that's what the, the Democratic uh, prosecuting team led by um, you know uh, Jamie Raskin, a congressperson from, from right around uh, the Washington, D.C. area, that's what we'll try to establish. They're also going to try, I suppose, to a great extent to see if they can see to it that President Trump will no longer be able to run for office, even though, for example, I was reading this morning that California Republicans would like to see him run again in the next presidential election and the majority of them back him. But uh, we've also got this difficult uh, situation now of trying to find out how to move into what you call a house on fire. And what I quoted uh, from you in the beginning of my introduction, that is, moving forward and also having to move backward and look at what the Trump administration was responsible for. Uh, at this point, in fact, the Democrats are going to have to get around the filibuster and budget rules, and they've got a lot of impediments and challenges just to get a delicate balance. It's true. And let's talk about practical considerations on both sides of this this equation. Again, what we're discussing so far is mainly shouldn't be considered mainly from a practical or utilitarian point of view because there are large um, issues of governance at stake. But purely practically, many people argued four weeks ago, let's say in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th um, riot, uh, that a lot of Republicans would welcome the excuse to remove Donald Trump from the possible slate of candidates uh, four years from now or three years from now. I personally don't think that he's likely to survive as as a prominent political figure three years from now. I I think that his sort of fascination will naturally limit itself in that time. But, but, you know, I'm not a Republican primary voter. but, But there was a sense that a number of Republicans, starting with Mitch McConnell, might view this as useful to have a way to take Donald Trump off the scene. That seems to have ebbed as a practical consideration for the Republicans, uh, as the loyalty of a lot of uh, Donald Trump's base seems to have, have manifested itself, and including uh, sort of the backlash against Liz Cheney in Wyoming. The other practical deliberation is on the Democrat side, and the calculations by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the new president and vice president, and by Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi as the new leaders of the Congress, about how exactly they want to manage the duties they have in the weeks and months ahead for dealing with America's other problems. Talking again with James Fallows, national correspondent for The Atlantic. And uh, let's talk about what really needs to be done in the wake of, uh, let's say, the corruption that has often been identified with the Trump administration, the culpability of the enablers and the others uh, who you've written about. 
I'm wondering uh, at this point uh, about something that you said about the need to have the state government authorities like New York investigate, and that's already underway. It's already also fait accompli in Georgia that that an investigation about uh, President Trump looking for more votes from Georgia uh, will be under investigation as well. Where do you see all this going? So I, I did a piece in the uh, in the print issue of the Atlantic, I think in the January uh, uh, edition, which probably is still on, on newsstands now, which came out shortly before the inauguration. And I was arguing, trying to assess how Joe Biden and Kamala Harris should divide their attention between looking backward at things that Donald Trump had done and looking forward to the to the emergencies they needed to deal with. And let me just let's be to be clear about them. You have the pandemic we're in the middle of, of course, the economic disaster coming from the pandemic. And you have all the strains on civil society that we've seen over the, over the last few months. And that's as big a handful of problems as any president since Abraham Lincoln has had to deal with on, on, on arrival. You know, FDR in 1933 didn't have a, a, a pandemic to deal with. And so I was saying that there are certain things that Joe Biden in particular, his most important decision was not to get involved with, with them. And those started with any corruption allegations against uh, Donald Trump or members of his circle because that's what st most of those are potential violations of state law. And so the state's attorneys general would, would take those up as they've been doing. And the ones that involve federal law, what a new administration do mainly should do is mainly get an uh, a, a very you know estimable uh, new attorney general for which uh, Biden has nominated uh, Merrick Garland, and then let the structure of federal attorneys, uh, inspectors general and, and district attorneys and all the rest deal with that and have Biden not spend one second of his own precious time talking about these corruption issues. All right, we're coming up on a break and I want to know what you, our listeners, think the Biden administration should prioritize in these early days in office. Where should the triage begin? And you may indeed want to talk about the impeachment trial or have questions about it. You can give us a call now. Our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org as we continue with Jim Fallows, national correspondent for The Atlantic and author most recently of Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is James Fellows, national correspondent for The Atlantic. And uh, his book, uh, which he co-authored with his wife, Deborah, Our Towns, will be a HBO documentary. In fact, it'll focus on six towns, including San Bernardino here in California, but also Sioux Falls and uh, a number of other cities, rural Maine and parts of Mississippi. And uh, looking forward to that, Jim. And also looking forward to talking with you some more about... Uh, what we're talking about here, and I want to remind listeners that they can join us. What do you think the Biden administration should be prioritizing in these early days in office? You can give us a call, 
Your comments or your questions are welcome, and you can join us to talk about impeachment as well. The toll-free number, 866-733-6786. Please feel free to join the program toll-free at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. One of the other things about the Biden administration may be moving toward, which you brought up, uh, and it was the first time I... I saw it mentioned, but it seems like certainly a really good idea is a racial justice commission sort of patterned after the Kerner commission back in the 60s. Um, is that is that in the works, do you know, or is that being planned? Um, I, I believe it is. Now, just to give a word of, of background for, for your listeners, I mentioned a minute ago that I have this piece in the current issue of The Atlantic where I was trying to talk with people who had been part of previous presidential transitions on what the lessons were on how you manage these things and what went well and what went poorly, et cetera. And an idea that many of them mentioned that came about which I changed my mind was the importance of these commissions. I think most people, you hear the word commission and your heart sinks. You think it's going to be some 2,000-word document and with with kind of uh, consensus recommendations and nothing really will come of it. But people pointed out that this actually has been historically for the U.S., an important um, vehicle for focusing on some large national issues. You mentioned, of course, the Kerner Commission from the late 1960s, talking about uh, racial justice uh, in, in America, talking about the evolution of two Americas, separate and and unequal. And that was one of, of a number. Uh, some of your listeners may recall may recall the um, commission looking into the, uh, the the space shuttle explosion back in the 1980s, where Richard Feynman, of course, was so famously uh, applying his physicist's um, eye to to a lot of the evidence. And what people have pointed out is that commissions can be a way, if you think of the, of the universe of forums that America now has to discuss difficult issues, congressional hearings are have just become these circuses for cable news. Cable news shows themselves have the problems that are that are so evident. And commissions have at least have had a chance of having some kind of deliberation, some kind of extended argument. And so um, that was one of a, a commission on on racial justice and the mechanics of democracy, of how the right to vote can be implemented, how all the sort of um, the practical aspects of American democracy can be improved. That was one recommendation that I, I heard from a lot of people. I passed on in this article, and I think things like that are afoot. And speaking about what's afoot, um, what, you, you also raise in your writing the fact that um, I think you talk about um, certain legislators, specifically Josh Hawley of Missouri and Ted Cruz, as being instigators in the insurrection, uh, the would-be coup or whatever it was. Um, and you talk about Twitter and Facebook as being crucial parts of the ecosystem of disinformation during the Trump years. How best to deal with that culpability and what kind of consequences so those are, are very interesting cases and important ones that, that I personally think of in sort of two separate categories. When it comes to appropriate accountability for Senator Hawley of Missouri and Senator Cruz of Texas, um, I think that, that, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been wise in consistently saying this is for the Senate to decide. I think that, that again, there is uh, an important metric for new administrations in general is choosing fights they don't need to get in the middle of. And I think when it comes to impeachment, uh, Joe Biden has consistently said, 
the House and the, the House has made its choice. The Senate now can now judge this this evidence. You know, I meanwhile moving on to deal with the pandemic, the economy, et cetera, et cetera. So I think members of the Senate need to decide among themselves what is the appropriate response to these two senators, whether it's like the response to Joe McCarthy, you know, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, where, where he was was formally rebuked by, by his Senate colleagues. Uh, we, we will see. Um, so when, when it, so I think that, that that is an illustration of of the way that that of parsing and dividing the responsibility for the role of the big tech companies. I think of it in the following historic terms, that it, from the, say, 1870s through the 1920s, the U.S. had the rise of new technologies that led to a number of new fortunes, new dislocations, and new quasi-monopolies. And the antitrust movement of the early 20th century was all about that. I think that the time is ripe and overdue for a new antitrust attention on some of the new monopolies of this era. And interestingly, this is not a strictly Republican versus Democratic issue. Even Senator Hawley, we've, whom we've been talking about, has been talking about some antitrust measures, as has Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. So I think that will be on the agenda once the emergencies of the pandemic and the economic crisis are less emergency. And as long as we're talking about consequences and matters that should be nonpartisan, what about the arguments you hear, not only from those on the right, that there were a lack of consequences for some of the protests in places like Portland and Seattle on, from the left? I think that consequences and accountability are fair for, for everything. And I, I think there is a matter of proportion and scale that if there had been and I think that if there had been similar disruption to central public buildings as the U.S. Capitol in Portland and, and, and Minneapolis and elsewhere, and similar threats to elected leaders, then I think there would be there should be similar scale of, of response. I think what happened at the U.S. Capitol was of a different scale than these others. But of course, there should be accountability for any disruption in public order, for any destruction of property, et cetera. Well, apropos of that, here's a comment uh, from Davey who writes, when you talk about inciting speech, look at Maxine Waters for example. Her rant resulted in DHS Kirsten Nielsen being brutally harassed at a restaurant and Schumer's rant about Gorsuch and Kavanaugh was certainly extreme, yet they suffered zero repercussions. So again, I, I understand the, um, the listener's perspective. My own view, again, is one of proportion. It is true that that um, both uh, the former DHS Secretary Nielsen and I think the former press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and some others had uh, people hassling them at restaurants. Um, and that that is bad and it shouldn't happen and I would never do that. And that is something people should be should be ashamed of. That is different from what happened at the US Capitol, where five or six people died, where many more people, could have died when a crowd was chanting, hang Mike Pence. Uh, it, so I think th that there are, it's important to recognize similarities, but also differences. There are differences of scale that mean differences of kind, in my view. Yeah, don't we do have too much yes buts, don't we, uh, in terms of uh, not even bringing into the picture the scales that we're talking about? Uh, yes, there is a... <laughs> There is a, a, a 
currently popular press term, um, whataboutism, which is that for any offense you find on one side, you can find, well, what about this? Um, I rem- <laughs> People of my um, aging boomer status will remember from the days when the Soviet Union existed, that whenever there was some criticism of uh, something the Soviet Union had done where they were invading Hungary or they were you know, sending their critics to psychiatric hospitals or whatever, the response from the Soviet media of that day would be things like, well, what about the inequity in your cities? And what about this or that problem in the U.S.? And the things they cited as what about were true. And it's a matter of scale and proportion. I think that, that, that any true American patriot, which I consider myself to have, have been over these decades, recognizes the strengths and ideals of the country and its failings. And we recognize, so again, we recognize similarities and failings across different institutions, but I think also to be intellectually honest and move uh, forward, and you need to recognize differences in scale too, in my view. I think we're still hearing that out of uh, President Russia, particularly with the riots that have been going on there. When uh, we hear about the criticism of the oppression of someone like Alexei Navalny, uh, they come back and say, what about in your country? So it's still with us. Let me, <laughs> it, it let me bring is. in some- Just to add, uh, so can I get, add just a, a yeah. word about, about China? You know, I, as you and I have discussed over the years, Michael, I've lived in China for a long time. And in the last three or four years during the previous, during the Trump administration, uh, the Chinese state media were really going all in on whataboutism, uh, <laughs> saying because of, of the really intense problems in the U.S. saying, uh, you're criticizing us for our problems with democracy, but what about all this you know, disruption you're having in the U.S.? So I think uh, it was sort of the, the uh, golden age of whataboutism from the Chinese state media in the past few years. Well, when the Chinese discriminate against uh, uh, Muslims, uh, we also hear yeah. the discrimination against uh, African-Americans and people of color here. So it goes back and forth. Let me bring some callers on here. We go first to Sacramento and we welcome Kay. Kay, you're on. Good morning. Yes. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to uh, talk about uh, the difference in scale between Maxine Waters and the president of the United States, uh, who takes an oath to preserve and defend. And with respect to these arguments that I keep hearing uh, that are being used uh, around the impeachment, such as freedom of speech, as if this were a legal thing rather than an impeachment proceeding, I don't hear a lot about uh, Trump's behavior as the event was taking place how he stood by and watched and didn't act. And when you take an oath to preserve and protect, I mean, the most vital pieces of our democracy, I just wondered uh, what uh, Mr. Fellows thought about that. Jim Fellows. Yes, so th- thanks very much. And your, your your last point about the way that Donald Trump was behaving in real time on January 6th, I believe that is going to be the focus of a lot of the attention later today in the, in the Capitol, because... That was, in a way, the most aberrant from past presidential behavior. On your initial point about the difference between a longtime esteemed representative, Maxine Waters, and a serving president of the United States, um, I agree, and I'll give you this illustration. As I mentioned, I once worked for a president. I worked for Jimmy Carter as a speechwriter back back in the day. What impressed me then, and what I've seen through various contacts with administrations of both parties since then, I'm talking about um, Republicans like um, Ronald Reagan and both of the Bushes and all the other Democrats that in that time, is how is the enormous weight that people 
felt around their shoulders when they became president and felt as if the consequences of everything they said, every choice they made, every life they put at risk one way or the other. Um, it's, it's conventional that presidents look about 20 years older when they leave office, when they start office. And that's because it is so hard. You spend all day, every day with these impossible choices because if they were easier choices, somebody else would have made them. And the difference between the way any past incumbent of the office would have behaved, would have responded to a riot in the Capitol and what happened that afternoon, I think is, again, a difference of scale and is not related to what um, any congressperson is saying. And we'll go next to another caller. Tim joins us from San Jose. Tim, welcome. You're on forum. Hey, welcome. How are you? I was just wondering why the rule of felony murder wasn't brought up or, or introduced at any point in this time. It just seems like the fact that people died here wasn't wasn't a major focus in this whole thing, and it's kind of sad. What about that, Jim Fellows? I mean, there were five deaths as a result of that insurrection. Yes, and rolling out it once more, my <laughs> I am not a trained lawyer, although I did spend a year at law school in England, so I, I, will, <laughs> I will mention that. Um, so I think that the investigations of the people who stormed the Capitol, those are still ongoing. And it is conceivable that from the evidence on the video files and from social media postings and by people who may turn on each other, et cetera, it is possible that charges of that sort might be brought out. I don't know well enough myself the different levels of proof that would have you know, uh, manslaughter versus various degrees of recklessness, et cetera. So I think it is possible that for the actual rioters, uh, that would be uh, that may still be in, in in store for Donald Trump himself. Again, I think it's important to remember that impeachment is not a criminal process. It's about political offenses and what first the House and then the Senate judges to have been misuse of public office as opposed to to criminal offense. Um, I think it would be hard to make a criminal court case that what anybody said at a rally led directly to somebody else's death, but you can make it as a political accountability case. So I think in terms of the actual rioters, there may be such prosecutions. We'll just have to wait to see what the FBI and the other authorities come up with. Well, related is a question Michael poses in an email. Now that Trump is out of office, why not just prosecute him? Isn't inciting insurrection a federal crime? Again, I don't know what your year of law school in England does for you here, Jim, but uh, there are people certainly calling for the president's prosecution. So there are. So let me now express my own personal political view. I think that would be politically unwise. I'm not talking Democratic Republican. I'm talking about for the for the fiber of, of the country that, that that it would mean for the next couple of years, by definition, a tremendously disruptive um, process that would shift attention in that direction, as opposed to political accountability for political acts. And that's what the Senate impeachment process is now. That's why the House voted it, feeling there should be uh, should be accountability. So I personally think that some possible federal prosecution on a criminal basis, even if you could do it, I think uh, I personally think it would be sort of a black hole that would suck away attention from other things the country can do. But I recognize people may differ about that. And I'm going to read a couple more emails about the impeachment. Rebecca writes, how can witnesses to an alleged crime also sit as the trial jury of that crime? 
And Philip writes, in law school, one famous technique they talk about to use in court is in court when the law is on your side, pound on the law. When the facts are on your side, pound on the facts. When neither the law nor the facts are on your side, pound on the table. This explains in part some of the actions we're seeing on display in this impeachment trial. And a question back to what I was asking you, Jim Fellows, about consequences for big tech uh, and uh, the social media giants. Red says, could you ask Mr. Fellows about attempts in Australia and the EU to make Google, Facebook, et cetera, pay for news instead of raking potential profits from news organizations into their own pockets? How likely or not is that to be seriously considered here? So let me start mainly with this last question, uh, just because it's different from what we've, we've discussed before. I think it's been fascinating over the past dozen years now when Google has become dominant in its realm and Facebook in its realm and Amazon in its realm. And those three firms together have a kind of weight and presence that um, we haven't really seen, I think, again, since in 100 years in terms of, of relative monopoly. And also, when we recognize both the benefits that all of those tools have brought, but also some of the uh, the, uh, the damage that they've done in various ways, I would say, in particular, Facebook, in, in my view, and as I can explain later if, if, if you want. And there have been three sort of global approaches to this. And, we'll, and I think we're in the middle of a kind of three-way experiment around the world. One is the Chinese approach, which is simply to create its own version, which is under state control. So China has been trying as best it can to have its own versions of Google and its own versions of the various social media. There's a European approach, which is more regulatory, and we're seeing that in Australia. And there's been the US approach so far, which is more or less laissez-faire, but I think we'll, we'll shift. So I can give you more details later, but that's the, that's the overview. Well, good overview, and we're coming up on a break, and I want to remind you we're talking with James Fellows, national correspondent for The Atlantic, his latest book, our Towns is the basis of a forthcoming HBO documentary. And if you'd like to join us in the time remaining, give us a call with your comments or questions. Uh, please feel free to do that. The toll-free number, 866-733-6786. Again, for your calls, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with James Fellows, national correspondent for The Atlantic. And what do you think about the Biden administration in terms of priorities in these early days in office? And before I go to more of your calls, Mike writes in an email, I'm curious to hear Mr. Fellows' thoughts about how the midterms might influence President Biden's priorities in enacting democratic policies. That is a, uh, that's a very interesting question, too. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the plagues of political life, of course, is thinking ahead to the next election, but it's necessary too. And I think Joe Biden has been in politics for a very long time. Of course, he came to the Senate first in 1972. Of course, he served those eight years with Obama. And I think the midterm that is most um, sort of branded into his mind right now is the 2010 midterm, 
where uh, Barack Obama and 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 Joe Biden with him suffered such sweeping losses in the House and Senate as part of the Tea Party revolution. And I believe the sort of lived experience lesson of that time for Biden may have been that Obama tried too hard and wasted too much time in trying to get bipartisan support for his measures that was never going to be forthcoming. <clears throat> it was the case that, um, you know, that, that Obama did spend probably a year and a half trying to get Republican support for a little more than a year for his Obamacare proposals, which were based on Mitt Romney's health care plan in Massachusetts and in theory could have had some Republican support. But in the end, Obama got zero Republican votes in the Senate for Obamacare and only one vote in the House, apparently by accident, which uh, <laughs> is, is its own story. And so I think Biden may have learned from that. It would be nice to be bipartisan, but it's more important for him to get the economic relief going and the pandemic under control. So I think that's been the lesson uh, that, that uh, for Biden, that the greatest risk he has in the midterms is doing too little. So I, I believe that's that's what we're seeing right now from uh, Biden and Harris. And let me go to more of your calls. Let's bring Richard on. Richard, welcome. You're on the air. Thank you. Uh, good morning. I just had a quick question. I wonder if you could possibly comment on what would happen when Trump is exonerated in the impeachment. He's not impeached. What does that imply for further efforts to get him out of office and not let him, excuse me, to keep him from running for any office in the future? Are, are people going to say, well, he's already been exonerated, so there's no way we, there's no reason to keep him from running again. So uh, I wonder if any comments on that, like uh, what options do we have now to keep him from running if he is not impeached? Right. Thank you. I think you mean if he's not, if he's acquitted, if he's not convicted. Yeah, if yeah. he's not, if he, yes, he's not convicted. He's been impeached twice now. And so the, uh, this is an interesting prospect too. Let, let's take what now seems overwhelmingly likely that there will not be sufficient, uh, you know, two-thirds votes uh, from, from, there won't be 17 Republicans who vote to convict him and then have the follow-on vote. It's not automatic, but it, it, it's expected to follow-on vote that he'd not be allowed to hold public office after that. So then Donald Trump, in principle, would be free to run for president again in 2000, uh, you know, four years from now or for governor of Florida or whatever he might want. So then it would be up to the normal processes of politics. My own personal guess is that Trump as a political figure is naturally going to wane anyway that a lot of what brought him to attention in 2015 was just sort of the the interestingness value. Cable news always had him on there because you didn't know what he would say, et cetera. He's become a more familiar figure. He has robust support among a minority of the, of the electorate. And my guess is that support will sort of peter out over the next uh, year or two as the next wave of Republicans um, rise up. But, but to answer your question directly, the only thing that would keep him from becoming president again is the electoral process, the electoral process of the Republican primaries and then the electoral process of a general election in 24. And we're going to move away for the moment from the impeachment uh, to Jessica and Livermore has a question about minimum wage. Jessica, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was curious, I just heard a report, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were saying that 
you know, if they raise the $15 minimum wage, that a good amount of people will be lifted out of poverty, but then there's going to be a significant job loss. And I was just curious what the thoughts and kind of the breakdown about that whole thing is. So this gives me a chance to say, while I'm not a lawyer, I did go to graduate school in economics. So here's one of the things I learned there, that there's been for a long time a debate on economic evidence of, of on the one hand, the common sense assumption and the assertion, especially by a lot of, of business interests, that if you raise the minimum wage, they're going to hire fewer people. The other is the actual empirical evidence that seems that that may not be the case. There was one famous study from New Jersey 15 or 20 years ago when there was a significant uh, minimum wage increase and it didn't uh, dampen the uh, employment in the ways that were expected and people you know, went to sue higher value jobs. So I think there is evidence on both sides. Um, it is There's been a recent uh, Congressional Budget Office uh, study just in the last day or two, which was having sort of the normal uh, economic prediction that there would be some trade-off of um, of number of jobs versus the the pay for people who ha- had jobs. The I don't have the numbers in the top of my head, but certainly just because of inflation, the minimum wage has just gone down year by year by year by year. And, and if inflation just in terms, if it were just at the same levels that were 25 or 30 years ago, it would be up, I believe, at this $15 level. So I don't have the exact numbers, but it certainly has gone down. So there is a very long-standing economic argument on this exact point. Um, my own belief is that the studies saying that, that, that the evidence, say, from other countries, too, is that raising the minimum wage can be part of a growing economy and leads to better jobs as opposed to a sort of a polarized economy. But that, that's the those are the poles of economic debate. Uh, as long as we're talking about subjects of debate, I wanted to find out your thoughts about a couple of other things uh, while we have you here, veteran journalist that you are and acute observer. Uh, Gary Camilla wrote an article in The Atlantic, and again, Jim F. Ellis is national correspondent for The Atlantic, about the renaming of schools uh, here in San Francisco. And I was curious to get your thoughts. It was uh, very critical, the article, and brought up Mayor London Breed's criticism that uh, although many think that there's a moral reckoning and the time has come, that this should not be uh, a concern during a coronavirus and pandemic of school closings. But your thoughts? So again, I think we have issues of scale here. Um, what, we lived in Austin, Texas for a couple of years, and one of my sons, uh, whom you've met, my, Michael, he went to kindergarten at what was then Robert E. Lee Elementary School in Austin. Uh, that finally got renamed about 10 years ago. It's now named Russell Lee after a famous Depression era photographer. It's still Lee School, just not Robert E. Lee anymore. I think on the one hand, there is naming schools after people who fought against the United States. You can say that is not, uh, that, that is not wise. On the other hand, I understand that the recent um, school board decision in San Francisco involved Abraham Lincoln and if we stipulate that everybody in world history has had flaws and there are criticisms of Abraham Lincoln, it is hard to find a figure in American history who, on the whole, in my view, has stood for more of the principles that America was aspiring to than Lincoln had as president during the Civil War and his object in the great Lincoln Memorial in D.C. So as a matter of scale, there seems to me a difference between changing away from Robert E. Lee and changing away from Abraham Lincoln. Um, It it doesn't seem to me as if this move from the the school board deserves a ton of national attention. There are a lot of other things going on, but I would not change. um, (laughs) 
I would not be changing school names away from Abraham Lincoln. In my own hometown in Southern California, the schools were all named for local people. And that was a way, I guess, to uh, dodge this issue there. And Daniel writes, what does James Fellows think about the fact that Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg removed Trump from uh, these major platforms and therefore having more power than the president? They were able to silence the most powerful man in the world. So I think that, that it's... Um, I agree and disagree with the premise of, of the, the question. They were, um, you know, the idea that that somebody, the person, the president of the United States is not silenced when this person still commands more press attention than anybody else on earth. He or she can get on TV whenever he or she wants. You can have the whole apparatus of the, of the U.S. government. Um, I think that both Twitter and Facebook decided too late that their platforms were being abused in ways that veterans of more established media had sort of developed instinct, had developed um, rules about over the, the centuries of the print media's existence and over the decades of broadcast TV and radio's existence. So I think that this was a late in the game reaction by these two. The part of your question I entirely agree with is that, again, particularly in Facebook, where the structure of the company is that one person, Mark Zuckerberg, essentially can decide his policies on his own. That is exactly the sort of situation with Standard Oil and other under the Rockefellers and others a century ago that led to policy decisions saying this is too much power in too few, too few hands, whether it's being used for this kind of decision or other business decisions too. So I think an era of antitrust is overdue. Well, it brings up the whole question. I'd be curious to know your response to these lawsuits against Fox News, which uh, is going to have some serious impact on them, isn't it? It seems to to uh, have had had that already. The, the disclaimers before the uh, My Pillow Guy um, video and the disappearance of, of Lou Dobbs, and so this again shows an old response, a sort of established legal remedies where the companies making the voting machines, um, Dominion and the other one, Smartmatics, whatever it's called, feels if by traditional, long established not 21st century standards, that their commercial interests and reputations had been damaged um, irresponsibly, uh, irresponsibly by, by um, members of the media. And that's, that's an established part of law. And somebody was giving the example, how would you like to be a Dominion voting machine salesperson these days in a place in, in Kansas or in Mississippi or in one of the Dakotas where people have come to associate your name with allegations of fraud. And so I think they this is use of established tools of civil society to say we have been wronged, we're looking for redress. Here's Barry, who writes to us, uh, actually writes to you, Jim. I enjoyed your book, but there's a micro-optimism that seems discordant with the national mood. Can you comment on how you view that disconnect? Um, yes, thanks for that question. And I really enjoyed talking about this with Michael a couple of years ago at, at the Presidio. And it's also the theme of our upcoming HBO film, which will be out on a April 13th. The main theme that Deb and I were trying to make in the book and the movie is that we're at a moment of history where national level politics is as bitter and as polarized and as destructive and as zero sum as it's been in a very long time. And I think that's a mood against which the new administration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is trying to operate saying, look, let's look for areas 
where we don't have to fight. Let's look for possibilities where we, we can agree. And we're trying to say that at the same moment of national level poison, there was to a very considerable degree, local level practicality, possibility, um, adaptability, innovation, and that if there is going to be a renewal of the civic spirit and the economic possibility and all the other parts of American life that need renewal now, lots of the most valuable examples are coming from the bottom up rather than from the top down. So I think uh, we're not at all denying what a what a frayed time this is nationally. We're looking for the sources of where the response might be, which come, I think, from a lot of of regions, communities, states, et cetera. And let me go to a few more emails here. Uh, this is Richard who writes, Trump's false claims of election fraud are even worse in light of the pandemic and the distraction they have caused. Surprised not to hear more criticism of Trump for this. And sort of a related uh, email comment that I'd like to maybe meld here and get your response to because it asked specifically for your response. Uh, and uh, this is from a listener who writes, um, uh, I've rarely heard anyone mention that as well as fearing of political consequences, if they, if they oppose Trump, will they be reelected, et cetera? Quite possibly they fear for their lives, literally. Recall during the storming, recall during the storming of the Capitol, there were people actively searching for Pence saying that they were going to kill him. So there again, this is something you brought up before. Uh, it gets into this question of where the priorities ought to be in this whole process that's unfolding before us in a matter of minutes here in Washington. Uh, it, yes, and on this business of physical threats, it certainly is true. And it was notable that during the Georgia recount um, you know, disputes that all of the senior state election officials in Georgia were Republicans, the governor and the secretary of state and some other election official who was on TV a lot. And they were all saying that they, as Republicans, their families were the object of harassment and threats uh, because of the sentiments that, that uh, Donald Trump had been whipping up irresponsibly against them. So yes, I think there are practical fears on a no number of public officials' minds. And of course, Governor uh, Whitmer of, of uh, Michigan was was in a whole different kind of um, situation with the, the plot that was against her. On the pandemic, um, I haven't gone into that because I've written so much in The Atlantic about what I viewed as the greatest failure of governance in American history which is the way in which the past administration did not respond to the pandemic. And I think there are some large number of lives, not all of the 400 plus thousand, but some large number of them that might've been uh, spared with, with, with a different approach. And you're right that, that because of the pandemic's effect on voting, it was then all the more dangerous to whip up suspicion of mail by uh, vote by mail and everything else. So um, <laughs> I, I have not, um, I think I'm on record as having recorded a lot of things I disagreed with in the administration's um, record. Well, here with only a few minutes left is a question from Russ. Uh, he says, I followed your guest for decades. He has a finger on the pulse of American culture. And Russ wants to know what current cultural forces allow people like Donald Trump and Elon Musk, uh, this caller brings those two together, to be considered by many as heroes. Ah, interesting. Um, thanks very much for your comment. I think um, Elon Musk, I, I think they each fit into a different American tradition. Elon Musk is in the inventor hero tradition. Thomas Edison was was a hero, uh, you know, back back in his time. Henry Ford was until he became an anti-Semitic crank. Um, there's a kind of long tradition of, of 
figures like this, a technological business heroes whom we have. Trump is, in my view, part of another kind of, of uh, long tradition, which is uh, of, of people, of demagogues of whom Trump has become the most powerful. Joe McCarthy never became president. Um, George Wallace was actually the most recent third party candidate to get any electoral votes as president in 1968, but he didn't become president. So Trump is a familiar figure in American life who became more powerful than any whom we've seen before. I keep thinking about Huey Long, too. Is that a stretch? Yes. Oh, exactly. And, and Huey Long, I, I think Huey Long, a difference would be, and this is time to recognize, recommend everybody read Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men, one of the great novels of American political literature, that he was an actual populist in his economic policy. He was a demagogue, but also an actual populist in what he did. I would argue that Donald Trump's actual policies, as distinct from his rhetoric, were not benefiting the people uh, who showed up at his rallies. Jim Fellows, always good to have you with us on Forum, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. So, Michael, can I say what a pleasure it's been to listen to you over the years and what an honor to uh, join you on the shows, and I'm so touched to be with you this week. Thank you for that, and I'm touched to hear it, and I appreciate very much the words. Again, Jim Fellows is national correspondent for The Atlantic. His latest book is Our Towns, and it's the basis of a forthcoming HBO documentary. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. Another hour of Forum is up ahead, and we remind you that you can let us know what you think about what you hear or would like to hear on Forum by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And in conclusion, I'll once again say, with I hope a great deal of uh, impact, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.